Good morning, church. Will you please join me as we start in the book of Amos, chapter 8, verses 4. Hear this, you who trample on the needy, and bring poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may make the epith small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances? that we may buy for the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? And on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring the sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east, they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Amos 9:11-15 In the day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of the old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. There, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and... It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the, in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed him. And blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentile and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, our King of Kings, we want to spend this morning in praise and adoration of you. Thank you for this time of Advent where we wait expectantly, full of hope for our Savior. Father, thank you for sending your Son to earth so that we, a fickle and sinful group of people, could be reconciled with you. Thank you for loving us enough to never give up on us. Throughout history, our love for you has gone back and forth, but you, O Lord, have never changed your love for us. Thank you for the hope and peace and joy that we have, not just during Christmas, but every day of our earthly lives. And thank you for the gift of salvation for which we can never repay nor deserve. 
that someday, because of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have a new life here on earth, an everlasting life in heaven with you. Thank you for the opportunity to gather together here as one body who recognizes Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Lord, watch over us and keep us near to you. Open our hearts as we listen to the message today. Speak to us and grow us in the likeness of Christ today and every day. Amen. Well, beloved, let's stand together and praise the Lord. What child is this who lay to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping this this is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing haste haste to bring him Lord the baby son of Mary You remember Advent is a fancy word for coming or arrival that we as Christ followers celebrate the coming of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I think that it's so very easy in these times to lose sight of what's happening at Christmas that you go, we have snowmen and Santa and reindeers and presents and, uh, you know, all these things that really cloud our judgment about what has really happened and why we would say that it's of not just local significance, but of cosmic significance. That for the Christ follower, that Christmas is the very focal point of all history, and it's upon uh, which every life well, will depend as to what we do with Jesus, God come in the flesh. I think some people look at Christmas and they, you know, think of, you know, maybe it's a funny story about the baby in the manger and what a thing for a culture to be gathering around. Or you might uh, think, you know, what, what happened where God got so desperate, where he had to go to this uh, story of putting forth his son in the manger. But what we want to look at this Advent is how Christmas was really the fulfillment of a, a long expected promise 
that we're looking at passages in the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, Old Testament and Hebrew Bible, uh, where God has effectively, he's called one people to himself, the Israelites, and he said, I'm going to, my relationship with these people, the Israelites, is going to provoke in uh, uh, to have all the other people uh, of the earth come to me. That this special relationship, again, not because Israel was better than the others, but just because of God's grace, he chose Israel. And the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, describes God's relationship with his covenant people, the expectations, where they went off the rails, what God did among them. And that's there for us, right, not as this interesting piece of history that we have to, uh, or makes our Bibles a lot heavier, but rather to say that this is integral. It's really important for our faith in Christ. Because what you find when you read the Hebrew Bible is that they'll be describing the historical events and you're kind of going through, and then all of a sudden, th there's a promise, there's a, a bold prediction from the prophets or in the historical narrative. It says God's going to do this. He's going to send somebody to, to gather all the people, that he's going to send somebody to judge. There, there's going to be a king to come. And that promise is just kind of left, left hanging there until you read the New Testament, until you see what God did in Jesus. And all those around Jesus immediately, those who wrote about him in the Bible, all those first Christians, right, they're clear on one matter in particular. It's that this Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. You ever notice reading your Old Testament how you don't go very many paragraphs at all without somebody writing something like, and this happened just as it was written, or this happened in order that it might fulfill. You remember last week, such a passage as that. So we understand Jesus to be the kind of hermeneutical key, the means by which we understand all these promises made to God's people in the Hebrew Bible. Now, there's a saying that, you know, at first it sounds a little bit like a riddle. It's not biblical, but I think it's a really important lesson for how we might understand how to read our Bibles. It goes back to St. Augustine. It, it goes like this. It says, the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. And you've got to take a moment to unpack that. You say, what's really being said there? Well, again, in the Old Testament, you have all these promises and signposts. And people say, well, when's this going to be fulfilled? That there's something there. It's concealed there. there. There's definitely something there. But I don't have the full picture. And then in the New Testament, you say, well, now I've got the full picture. That Jesus is the one who fulfills those promises in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament now becomes clear to me. And so last week, we looked at an 8th century B.C. prophet, a man by the name of Hosea. And the central thrust, if you had to say, if somebody said, you know, here, you got, you know, 10 seconds to say what the book of Hosea is about. You'd say the, the message is about God's love. That if you read Hosea, that it's unmistakable that God unconditionally loves his people. That we're likened, if you remember, we're likened to an unfaithful, adulterous spouse. That we're likened to a wayward child. And God is the loving and faithful covenant partner. And God is the loving and faithful parent. They say, if anyone doubts God's love or thinks that, well, that's a very abstract concept. I can't get my mind around that. Say, Hosea would be a very good book to look. Say, God is a loving towards his people. And he demonstrated that in Jesus. And again, those first followers, followers made that connection. Say, in Jesus, God's demonstrated his love exactly as it was talked about in that 8th century B.C. prophet. Now, today we come to a contemporary of Hosea, a man named Amos that they're very closely related in terms of chronology, maybe Amos a little bit earlier, but an 8th century B.C. prophet, again, to the 10 tribes in the north before they're sacked by the Assyrians in 722. And we could ask that same question. We said, if Hosea is about love, what's the message of Amos? They say, Amos is about God's righteousness. It's about his justice. And say, we often want to pit those two things against each other, don't we? Say, you could have like, you know, the kind of love and mercy and those attributes of God and justice over here. And we think that those are enemies. But the God of the Bible says those two things aren't enemies, that they go together. And Amos, as you even saw in our reading from chapter 8, is that Amos is a book that wants us to understand God's just character, his righteousness. What do we mean by God's justice or righteousness? We mean his absolute fairness. We're talking about a moral quality that God alone possesses where he's the rightful adjudicator of all right and wrong. In fact, everything that we describe as right and wrong is really anchored in who he is. And isn't it interesting? You say, this year, justice 
is all over the place. It's often qualified, I think unnecessarily so, right? We hear mostly social justice, but the idea is that justice is a longing, a basic longing of the human heart. It's one of these great universals. You think, well, how do I get into a conversation you know, with God? Well, justice might be one way because deep down in our hearts, we long for somebody to kind of settle the score at the end of the day, don't we? Say so we want somebody to be able to gaze upon the whole world, to see all that's happening, to set the rights and the wrongs. And here's, I think, the great contradiction, though. While we all know what justice is and we all long for it, that we have a contradiction inside each one of us. See if you think this is true. But when it comes to this, say, I often want justice applied when it's to my benefit, but I'm not that keen to have justice applied when it's to my detriment. That I'm actually quite a good critic. That I can go on the news and I see, well, I wish that was otherwise and that's got to be otherwise and look at that problem out there and look at how that person misled that person, how that person did wrong and I get on my social media and I crank out an angry post and I say, I'm quite good at that thing. I want justice out there. But rarely do I ask the question, do I want there to be a judge over what's in here? And you see, that contradiction will get us close to where we need to go today. I often think of Jefferson's line, a man that I found to be very uh, captivating in the, in the uh, kind of uh, the, the enigmatic state. But Jefferson, right, I tremble for my country when I think that God is just. What did he mean by that? Say, this man who wrote these very high-minded documents whose behavior wasn't that high-minded, evidently. What do we make of such a... Is that not every one of us? To say, I long for justice. I know it's out there. I don't really know, uh, you know, how does it apply to me? And we do two things with this riddle, this contradiction in our hearts. That the first thing we do is we relativize justice. That we find somebody who we know deserves justice and we put ourselves a little bit to, to the, the other side of the continuum as that person, right? So I don't know, this is, I think, the new way to have moral discussions with secular folks. Again, see if you, you're talking about somebody, and, and inevitably, in my conversations, the Nazis come up. Does that happen? Hitler and the Nazis. It's as if Hitler and the Nazis, you know, this is the absolute, you know, stake in the ground as to, you know, what we know, know to be bad. And as long as we're a little bit, uh, you know, we're, we're down the spectrum from these terrible people, uh, then we're doing okay. So we can all think of names. Um, you know, you, you can all think of you know, somebody out here. You know, out here you have, you have Hitler, you have Stalin, all the, the great evil people of history. We want justice for them. In fact, if there's no justice for them, you know, that would be a very bad thing altogether. We'd like there to be real pain for these people. Uh, yesterday I was, or this week sometime, I'm flipping through the stations and it's one of those um, shows that talks about one of the crimes committed and the detective's up there and he's saying, I hope the perpetrator, you know, goes to hell. I just had it on long enough to catch that line that this person did a horrible thing and, and the heart cries for justice for them, but we're okay because we're not over there, we're over here. I mean, look at us, we're decent people. Um, you know, we almost all live in the suburbs, we have decent jobs, we don't do violence, uh, we, we have clean thoughts in our hearts and so forth. We're not bad people, they need justice, we don't. That's called relativizing justice. The other thing we do, and this, this is worrying me a bit more, because it's more and more prevalent, and that is what, what I would call qualifying certain acts of justice. In other words, we're starting to say, well, let's look at the kind of environment a person's in. And if there are enough qualifications, then that person actually isn't subject to the same laws as we are. That you get into, you know, phrases like intersectionality. And, well, this group has had this bit of a problem, therefore, uh, you know, the benchmark is here, but this group has had all these kinds of good things happen, and they're just... In other words, we've qualified justice, and it suffers a death by a thousand qualifications. And I ask you, you say, this kind of selective justice is not justice at all. He said, whenever I say, I want it applied there, but not here, or I think it should be this way here and not this way here, say, so anytime we go down that line, say, it's not, it's not a fair system. So you ask yourself, say, why do I long for justice deep down? I want there to be a just judge. I'm a little scared, if I'm honest, about what that just judge would do with my own heart, that I tend to relativize it or I tend to qualify it. What really do we need to answer this question? And I would submit to you that what we really long for what we really know to be the truth deep down is a person like the God of the Bible. How do you get a fair judge? Well, this kind of being would need to be 
outside of the space-time continuum, right? Because you've got historical personages like the ones that I've named, you know, Hitler and Stalin. Who's going to judge them now? They're gone. You need someone outside of space-time. You need someone who's able to see everybody. You also need somebody who can gaze into the human heart to look at things like motivations. You say, what kind of being must it be in order for him to be a just judge? Oh, the God of the Bible. The God that Amos is talking about. The one who made us, the one who sees the heart, who stands outside, who's completely impartial and can gaze in at each one of us. And I submit to you today that this is the point that we're to get. And we'll go again to see why this is made evident in Jesus and why it's so important. So Amos has a very tough job, by the way. You see, when Amos is a prophet, it's actually a time of economic prosperity in Israel that things are going fairly well, that the people have uh, a lot of, you know, they have multiple houses, that the, uh, the aristocratic class is doing well. And so what's the job of any prophet? And Amos's job is to try to get those in God's people to think and obey God more. <laughs> hey, everybody, I, I know it looks like we're, we're clever and everything's going well, but we've forgotten about our maker. As Hosea said, we've forgotten about the law, that we've forgotten about our covenant relationship. We're plowing through, we're not paying to, hey, we, we need to repent. So you can imagine a lot of those Israelites say, well, what do you mean? My business is doing great. Everything's going fine. I just need a preacher to tell me that I'm doing great and fine. I don't need somebody to come around and tell me that I need to pay more attention to God or that I need to think about God's justice or what's happening in my heart. That's the last thing I need. Rather, I just want to keep going my own way. So that's why Amos, like a lot of prophets, have a tough job in the Bible that they're coming, again, in a time of economic prosperity, a time when Israel has forgotten their maker and he wants them to think more deeply about God. And I hope that as a way of introduction, we can see last week the love of God, this week the righteousness, the justice of God, and the first major point, I think bold heading number one there in your notes, that we don't want to miss this, is that we worship a God who cares enough to judge sin. We worship a God who cares enough to judge sin. That it's all too often now that we think that God is aloof, that he's indifferent. Yeah, I think there must be somebody out there. He's, you know, somebody had to make everything after all. And, uh, you know, but in terms of him being, you know, interested in my affairs, say how I treat people or how I'm, again, conducting my business matters or how I'm treating Mallory or my parents, I can't imagine there's a being out there that actually cares about me on that level. I mean, if there's a God, he's aloof. That's a very common tendency. You know, Christian Smith is a sociologist at Notre Dame, and I think he gave a very good phrase. He's, uh, he studies a lot of uh, young, young people, adolescents. I guess you'd call them millennials now. But in 2005, he gave us a wonderful phrase. Uh, you remember it by MTD. No connection at all to the beloved company here in Northeast Ohio and Valley City. But MTD, he says, is moralistic, therapeutic deism. He says a lot of our young people are marked by a moralistic, therapeutic deism, and sadly, this kind of, if you can call it a theology at all, has made its way into our churches. That the moralistic part is just, well, you know, let's just talk about what we need to do. Uh, let's just talk about what's right and what's wrong and pat ourselves on the back when we follow uh, the exact letter of the law. Uh, we just, uh, you know, want, want to know what to do and we, we want to know it now. That's the moralistic part. The therapeutic part is that we seem to think that our uh, really lives are, are nothing more than about maximizing my own happiness. That we're pleasure seekers way more than we are truth seekers and that I want a, a church and a system that's going to maximize my comfort, and I deserve to be comforted because that's what it means to be human, and I want everybody else to conform to kind of my game plan, and I'll be tolerant of yours, and we all just need to be good therapy to each other so we can, uh, again, kind of maximize our pleasure and our happiness. So give me the rules. Give me the right and wrong. I'll stay in that lane. I'll be a good guy. I don't want to have the wrong side of any judicial system. I want to, uh, again, therapy uh, to focus on myself, and, of course, the D is and we've talked about already that if there's a God, he's not concerned about any of these fairs. We've adopted a moralistic therapeutic deism, somehow thinking that not talking about God's justice is somehow a better thing for the church 
and a better representation of God, right? I think that's the way the reasoning goes as well. Actually, it's, let's talk more about Hosea, you know, the love of God and happiness and pat each other's back and let's tone down this language of God's justice and him being a just judge and looking into our hearts and actually taking, taking us to account for all the things that we've done and said and how we've treated people. We don't need that. We just, we just want to keep going the way we're going. Say, that is not acceptable for a people of God that we don't do ourselves any service by not examining this aspect of his character and we certainly don't do the non-believing world any good or we think we are if we ignore this aspect of his character why because if a god if there's a god who didn't judge sin he would be unjust and he wouldn't be worthy of our worship you say we worship a god who cares enough to judge our sin and you say again that good part of this you think back to all the things that have happened to you the things that you've not had really not we've not had the courage to talk about in our lives those terrible things that happened to you as a child or the way that you've been taken advantage of in a business dealing or the way you're being pushed around now or mistreated you say is there a god in heaven who sees those things who will judge justly amos says there's a just judge he sees those things, and he will judge justly. But the other side of that coin, right, in order for him to be a just judge, is he sees all the things that I've done. All the idle words that I've spoken, the harsh things that I've done, the times that I've misled and, and, and mismanaged and been impure and all those things. Well, there a God in heaven who sees those things too. Yes, he sees those things too, and there's a just judge. And we worship him because he is that way. And because he's the only authority and the only one in position to do such things. That's why Amos starts, right? Not just uh, in any manner, but the judge to the nations. Chapter 1, you could imagine that the people hearing this the first time, they would quite, quite like chapter 1 of Amos. Because he's bringing judgment on all of her enemies. Uh, Damascus and Tyre and the Ammonites and the Edomites and all these. You can imagine they're cheering. Yes, Amos, preach it on. You know, all those, all those out there, they deserve the justice. But then in chapter 2, it changes. But what about your hearts, Israel? Are you behaving as God would want you to behave? And it turns out they're not. They've forgotten their maker. Let's look at some of the things that they're doing. You can see even in the section we read from Chapter 8 and verse 4, Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When all the new moon be over, that we may sell grain and the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. What are God's people doing? They can't wait to get back to business after the holy days so that they can swindle and take advantage of those who are less well off. You know, the false balances, right? That you put a, a hidden weight on it, so somebody thinks he's buying this amount of grain, but you charge him actually for more grain, so you're taking money that you're selling him, you know, kind of short. You're giving him one thing and taking more. You're trying to make the shekel great. You say you're cheating your employees, maybe, uh, taking a bit more profit for yourself. Or somebody now, you might say, uh, you know, you're in charge of a building project or a person's in charge of a building project and they deliberately use uh, bad materials and cut corners. This is the kind of thing God's people are doing. They're taking bribes. You say, well, you know, just a little bit more. I'll do what you need me to do. And God says, this is out of bounds. That the way we conduct ourselves in these affairs matters. That if we say we know the God of the universe and we trust him to be the just judge and we're his people, then we want to behave like it when we interact with other people. How about that line of ignoring the afflicted? Back in chapter 2, so you could imagine somebody comes to you in need of help, or at least they were in this time. They're coming to the Israelites or these people with uh, very well-to-do, and they're saying, can you please uh, help us? And they say, no, instead of doing that, we're humiliating them. Well, you poor soul, uh, you know, you, you, you deserve what you have, and I'm not here to help you. That kind of behavior is what was typifying Israel at this time. How about how they manage money? You can read this in chapter 4. It's interesting that it would go out to the women of Israel, right? They're oppressing the poor and they're demanding of their husbands, you know, bring that we may drink. Uh, they're overcome with laziness, that they're using all of their prosperity for what? For self-indulgence. 
You remember a few weeks ago, we talked about stewardship, that God's entrusted us with so much. How do we use that to help others and to do more for other people, right? To reflect him and to bring him glory. That's the biblical perspective. Stewardship, well, not so during this time in the 8th century, right? They're just saying, more, more, more. I want more. They've fallen into laziness. The way that they're managing their money is a poor reflection on their maker. And you know, ladies and gentlemen, I think the way that we handle our money really does say something about who we are as a people. I'm not saying that I, I, you know, even am for this, but it is something to say that when employers are looking to hire somebody that they do a credit check. You say, why would that ever be something they would do? Because we realize that the way we manage money says something about our temperament and says something about our self-control. And the Israelites had lost this. You keep going down, chapter 2 and verse 7. I won't read this here because of the, you can see the severity, the gravity of the act, but that they're using their bodies in any way that they please, taking advantage of others. And I think the Hebrew Bible's always been right about this, that again, another difference, or I should say something that's uh, very tragic in our world is that we've separated, we've told a lot of young people, you can separate the mind from the body, just like Plato did all those years ago. You know, so we have a lot of young people now say, I can use my body any way that I want, and it's not going to affect my mind. And I think that we know that not to be true. Say the body and the mind, the Hebrew view is correct, that the way we use our bodies does affect what's above the shoulders. And in chapter 2, verse 7, that they are having relations inappropriately and using their bodies in a way that displeases God and again creates a lot of damage in a society. They're prideful and self-centered. Chapter 6, verse 8, their leadership is selfish. Instead of leaving the, leading the people and, and being selfless, that they're being selfish and taking advantage. And all this, you say, all this is buttressed, probably most scary of all, by a phony faith. Take a look at chapter 5 and verse 21. The Lord says through, Moses, or through Amos, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. You say, what's going on in chapter 5 and verse 21 forward? Did all these people, these Israelites, say, look at us. We're good people. We're coming to the assembly. We're singing our songs. We're doing all the right things in a formula. that They've bolstered this behavior by erecting a false view of God and a phony faith. And I ask you on all these, you say, you look at our own culture, you dismiss Amos, say, Amos, this is a little weird. I mean, it's Christmas time and we're looking at, at Amos of all people and is this really relevant to us? You notice how on each of these things that they're not, they're not issues out there, not problems with the West or problems you know, with America that are real easy for us to, 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 to weigh in on. But rather, these are all matters of things that actually I'm going to be able to do or not do this week. How do I behave at work? How do I behave with my colleagues? How do I handle my finances? How have I handled my body with purity or impurity? Am I prideful? What about my leadership in the church, in my home? Am I selfish? Have I invented a kind of God, a moralistic, therapeutic, deistic God to justify my behaviors? Yeah, yeah, I'm just doing my own thing. I feel pretty good about it. I deserve to feel good about it because I'm a 21st century American. Just tell me, you know, I'm not as bad as others and God really doesn't care whether I'm kind this week. Say, may it never be. God cares about these things in our life that are very daily and practical. And we don't want to erect a God who is indifferent to judge, who's not worthy of our worship. We worship a God who cares enough to judge sin. I think Richard Niebuhr was right when he described a lot of American religion this way. He says, we have a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without the cross. You say, I'm afraid, I fear that many of our churches and many of our Christian discourse has gone this way. A God who has no wrath to people who aren't sinners, to a kingdom where there's no judgment through the efforts of Christ, who's nothing more than a moral example. You say, that is not 
the God who made us. It's not the God in the Bible. Quite frankly, that kind of God is not impressive. He's not the one for whom our hearts long, but rather we worship God who cares enough to care about sin, ours and others, and there will be a reckoning. There will be a reckoning for all those who don't come to terms on his terms with these matters. So point one, we worship a God who cares enough to judge sin. Point, bold heading number two, that we do well, we do well to contemplate, to think about God's justice. So again, you say, well, is this really, is this really good, good thing to devote our minds to? I mean, there are much higher thoughts um, this time of year. I mean, should this really be high on the list? And we must say, yes, contemplating God's justice is one of the more important things we can do. Because that's how we think about who he is and who we are and how we can be his people. And you know, this matter of ignoring God's justice has been around a very long time. Maybe you'll read Amos this week. It's not that long of a book, but in chapter 7, say I smile this week every time I read this. It's a very, very modern story. You see, a professional prophet comes on the scene. This is chapter 7 and verse 12 in Amos. A professional prophet by the name of Amaziah. Now, you remember, say, Amos is not a professional clergyman. He's a dresser of sycamore figs. He's a shepherd. God just called him. But Amaziah, you say, he's a real man of the cloth. You know, I mean, he, he's been well-educated. He, he knows all the right answers. He's a high, this is your woke pastor. This is your politically correct pastor. And he comes on, and what's he say there? He says, Amos, tone it down, buddy. You don't want to upset the king with all this talk of God's justice and judgment. Can't you see the people are happy? I mean, they've got a lot of houses. We just need a clergyman who's going to tell the people they're doing great. That's who we need. Don't upset anybody. And say how tragic that is because it's untruthful. And say the judgment of God would come. And Amos, again, wants us to see that angle. That Amaziah, Amaziah, this very modern figure, let's just push the judgment and the justice and the righteousness of God aside, focus on all the fluffy stuff that makes us feel good. But quite frankly, when we do that, God becomes, again, unimpressive and unworthy of our worship, that we do well to contemplate God's judgment. And what you'll see in this book is that God's interaction on this matter is to elicit a response from his people. That when we talk uh, in the membership class, those who've been through it say repentance is a very bedrock of what we believe here. You say repentance, it's a religious word, some might say. It means just a, a turning to God, a turning away from worldly things and a turning to God. And this is what we're about. It's not just when we're converted. You say that's the most obvious way when we turn to God, we repent of our sins in the world and we return to God. But it's the posture of every Christ follower every day to say each day I want to turn from the world and turn more to God. So if you just have a, a brief look at chapter 4, I won't read all of it, but chapter 4, you know, uh, from verse 6, this is what God did. He's talking about the, more, the immorality of God's people that God relents and notice this refrain. Uh, chapter 4, verse 6, but you did not return to me. Or how about verse 8? But you did not return to me. Verse 9, you did not return to me. Verse 10, you did not return to me. Verse 11, you did not return to me. Do you see how God, there's always this idea of an invitation when it comes to God's justice. My people, repent, come back to God, return to him. Can't you see there's a moral economy? Can't you see we've been guilty of these things, that we've neglected our covenant obligations? Return to him. And all the time people say, well, you know, it's not, Christianity's not a religion, it's a relationship. Have you heard that? And people just kind of throw that out. And you say, well, what really does that mean? You say, I think it's accurate, but we need to understand what it means. Maybe something like this, that God's people do well to contemplate his just character, to contemplate the fact that there will be a reckoning, to contemplate the fact that God really does care about the things that I do in my life, and to realize that what he wants of us is to return to him in humility, to return to him in repentance, and to love him all the more. That's what we mean by relationship. Who is he? Who are we? How do we actively engage in this? And he's given us many gifts to think about justice. That he's given us a conscience, which is a wonderful gift. This inward compass. He's given us what I would call, again, a moral economy. Isn't it very interesting? I don't think we talk about this enough. But in almost all advanced societies, that the civil laws match the Judeo-Christian ethics very well. 
even if you go to, say, very advanced Scandinavian countries, right, very progressive, you know, we don't need any of that old dusty Christianity stuff, but if you look at their laws, and you say, well, where have I seen this before? It's in the Bible. So you try to steal something in Amsterdam, you say, well, you know, there are going to be consequences, and the same, we say, why do we, God's given us this idea of a conscience, he's given us the idea of a moral economy, He's given us the fact that without the rule of law that nothing works. And I think, right, that these consequences are actually a good gifts from God. You know, when you're a teenager and you've done something wrong and your dad calls you in and dad says, well, there are going to be consequences for your behavior. And you say, no young guy in the world says, how in the world is this ever going to be a good thing, you know, consequences for my behavior? But you say you start to think carefully about these matters about justice and you say, actually, isn't that a great design by God? That he's given me freedom to make choices. That when I make those choices, rightly or wrongly, that they can be reinforced by consequences. And oftentimes, when I do things outside of the boundaries of what he's asked me to do, that there are consequences. Is that not a sign of God's goodness and his righteous character? Friends, we do well to think about God's just character and this day of reckoning and indeed the gifts he's given us. And the chief gift, of course, which I've saved for last, is the gift of his word. The gift of the proclamation from Amos this morning. And the scariest verse, while this is a very scary book, Mallory read it yesterday on the treadmill she comes up and just looked at me she said I just read Amos I said I know it is a book of God's judgment it is it should rightfully make all people tremble about God's reckoning with our sin but the scariest verse which again the modern ear does not think is that scary chapter 8 and verse 11 behold the days are coming declares the Lord when I will send a famine on the land not a famine of bread nor a thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Now, does any modern person, you tell me, is that true for any one of us? Say, how could it be that not having my Bible, not having access to my Bible, would be worse than not having food or water? Say, I don't think that's true. I'd rather have food and water than God's word. Well, the fact of the matter is, at least from God's view, that there's something way more serious than not having food or water. That's not having his word, not having his guidance. And what you have take place in the days of Amos is much like what Paul describes in Romans 1 and 2. He says, if the people don't want to hear God's word, and we don't want to pay attention, or we chop it up, and we take this part and not this part, say, if we want to behave that way, God says, Okay, I'll give them what they want. I'll withhold my word from them. And we become a godless people without aim, lost in ourselves, anxious, suicidal, at each other's throats, factionalized, say, that's the way you want to go? God withholds his word. Friend, may that never be the case here at our church. That's why we read the word of God every week. We read long passages. Sometimes we read obscure passages. We don't apologize for reading long, obscure passages. We have the word of God taught in the children's ministries. We have it taught in the youth ministries. We spend the majority of our time on Sundays and in our small groups looking at the word of God because he is our guide and our anchor. And we don't want the day to come where all too many people say, well, I want to create God in my image. I want moralistic, therapeutic deism. I don't need this Bible stuff. And God to say, fine, you want that? No more guidance. May that never be. We treasure God's word. We do well to contemplate his word. We do well to contemplate his justice because chapter five, we seek the Lord and we live. In him is life and an anchor. Now in this book of judgment, and I know a lot here this morning, eight and a half chapters of Amos are about God's just judgment of sin and how he's going to use the Assyrians to come in and take out the 10 northern tribes and then, of course, looking on even forward to the southern tribes being taken out. It is a book of harsh judgment. But do you notice chapter 9, how Amos ends? It's one of those signposts. It's one of these promises. So we're all bogged down in this judgment, but then look, chapter 9, verse 11, in that day... 
after the day of judgment, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, their most formidable foe at the time, and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. And it goes on. There's going to be a time of prosperity and a time of security and a time of restoration. So do you see what's happened here? So here we are. God's dealing with the Israelites. They're doing all these things that are, are again, outside of God's boundaries. There's going to be swift judgment. But wait a second. There's a time in the future where the throne of David is going to be occupied where it's going to be repaired and restored. Somebody's going to be on that throne and all the nations are going to come in to be God's people. So that is a significant signpost. Who's going to fulfill that? You say, is there something concealed there, right? There's a promise concealed. We know that it's there. Who's going to fulfill it? Well, to our New Testament reading would be one place to look. That Simeon, Luke chapter 2, this old, devout Israelite, No doubt, being described that way, he would have been very familiar with the promises of Hosea. He would have been very familiar with Amos chapter 9, verse 11, that here he is, he's waiting, right? We're told, chapter 2, verse 25, that Simeon, this old man's waiting for the consolation of Israel. What does that mean? He's waiting for all these promises to Israel to be restored. Is the day going to come where the Lord's Christ comes? And he holds who? The baby Jesus. And he says, here he is. This is the Christ. This is the one in whom all these promises, all these promises pointed to this baby. In this baby, there's the consolation of Israel, the rescue of, the restoration of Israel. In this baby, all the nations are going to come in that this is him. He's the one that's going to judge. You ever put yourself in Mary's shoes here? You know, I can imagine just being so very proud for most of this discourse. That Simeon's saying all these nice things, that God's going to deliver his people, until you get to verse 34, the second part of it. And Simeon says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. Of course, Mary's heart will be pierced also for what he has to endure, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon says this baby boy is going to be the fulcrum on whether nations rise and fall. And this baby boy is the one who's able to see into every human heart. Now, you remember where we started. We said, if there's a just judge, he's got to be somebody who can judge all the nations and all people. And he's got to be able to see into the heart. Say this... Christmas, are we able to see not only the love of God in Jesus, but this whole talk about God being a just judge is not just out there in the philosophical sense, but it's in the person of Jesus, that he's the one that we all need to come to terms with. You say, God, while he takes sin seriously, otherwise he wouldn't be worthy of worship, but while he takes sin seriously in his love and his mercy, he's put forth his son Jesus to absorb the blow to take our shame and our sin and all the things that we've been doing just like the people in Amos' time, all the people that I've swindled and mistreated and all the afflicted that I've turned away and how I've mismanaged my money and mistreated my wife and my parents and misused my body and been a poor leader and erected a phony religion, all those things, Christ took the blow. God's the just judge, but he put forth Jesus. Can you see how he's unique? A few closing remarks. I've been very very discouraged this year by the so-called evangelical churches decoupling of justice from Jesus. Say all kinds of churches putting out statements and writing things on social media and participating in this and participating in that. And I say, well, we're having justice on the world's terms. That we don't have Jesus, then we'll never have real justice. That that's them to say, in Jesus, that's the one. He's the only one that can make our hearts tender. He's the one before whom I'm going to judge. And quite frankly, he's the only one who's going to give me the power to behave any differently than in my fallen and sinful state. That we don't want to decouple justice and add qualifiers for it if it's not about the just judge. And the one who not only is the just judge, but gives us the power to execute justice. When we talk about justice, we talk about Jesus. 
those two go hand in hand. That's what we're to see at Christmas time. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, you say this idea of justice, I would guess, is a big problem for you. Because you say, how is it ever going to be resolved? Uh, because it's just kind of human systems competing against each other. And quite frankly, it seems to be getting worse, not better. I guess there's, there is, is there no just judge for all the things that have happened in the world, all the things that have been done? And if you're not a Christian today, I hope you see that the moral economy and what God has done in Jesus is unique. And God says, I take sin seriously. I'm a just judge, but in my love, I've put forth my son. And the moral equation is balanced. We understand there's a reckoning, God's perfect justice and his perfect love. And I pray that you come to Jesus this, Christ, this Christmas. You see in him what you find nowhere else. And without that, I'd ask you to think whether there can ever be such a thing as justice at all because you have fallen human people doing bad things to one another perpetually. We need the Lord Jesus. We need the just judge. We need to be made right by him. Now, if you are a Christian, again, we do well we do well to think about God's justice. It's not to be shunned. It's not to be something we're embarrassed about. Think, well, no, nobody's going to come back here if we talk about who God really is. May it never be. To say this is a part of his goodness. And we'd be very disappointed if he wasn't a just judge of sin. But we have to understand he, that applies to us too. But thank goodness he's put forth Christ. And this week, all those little interactions you're going to have, fellow classmates, colleagues with your children, with your parents, the way those who don't have as much as you do, you say, you could say, well, I'm a deist. I don't think God's that involved. Or you could say, you know what? I read Amos this week. And God cares about those things. And I want to represent him well and obey him well. And each day that you're a Christ follower is an exciting adventure to do that. So I'll pray and invite the team up. Father, thank you very much for putting Hosea and Amos back to back or close together in the Bible that we see your love on the one hand, that the unconditional love that any of us would say that when we betrayed somebody like that, how could there ever be such love? And yet that's you, that you, while we were uh, sinners and in rebellion against you, that you gave us Jesus to show your love. And then today to read Amos, to say as we look at our very tragic world and all that's happened and all the problems in it, and we say, well, is there going to be a just judge who looks at all the hearts all the motivations of the heart, every idle word, does such a person exist? How do we know that that being exists? Well, thank you again for Christmas. That the risings and fallings of the nations, the one who glares in to judge the inclinations of the hearts, the nooks and crannies of the heart, as Calvin said, that all those is the Lord Jesus that we stand before him. Lord, help us to recapture a bit of that trembling that trembling before you, the just judge, and help us to delight in the fact that we have Jesus for those of us who've entrusted him. And Lord, again, for those who are here, they say, well, this is, you know, I, I don't know where I'm at on this. I pray you'd draw them in. They'd see in Jesus, yeah, that is the one just judge, the perfect one, the one that all this is about. So Lord, help this sink in. Help us to be a people that doesn't forget your justice and really responds well. And in each little thing we do this week, we'd be mindful that, that you see all. May we represent you for Christ's sake. Amen. Angels from the realms of glory